This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. My name is Remington Almeida. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5. You can find it on page 810 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We will be reading from a few different sections in this chapter. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And now verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now verses 31 and 35. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And now verses 38 and 39. And a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And finally, verses 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the unjust and the just. Thanks, Remington. Thanks, Mike. Hey, let me pray one more time. Jesus, we uh, welcome you now to do what you promised to do, to change us, to transform us. Living Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt with us so we would know what God was like, would you now speak in the room by your Spirit? Would you bring comfort and conviction? Would you save people? Would you help us obey your Word and hear your Word and receive your Word? And we ask that you would do supernatural work in us more than a sermon could do, more than my ideas could do. Would you do something that's rooted in the Scriptures, that promises, and it's also like a hammer. So would you give us what we need in these individual places where we find ourselves? And uh, we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through Matthew. We're now in this section called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest sermon that we have recorded. 
him giving instructions about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And I say that because this little section didn't just come out of nowhere. It's in the beginning of his sermon. It's actually kind of a hinge point in the sermon because he said some fair isn't brand new. This is in keeping with the storyline that God has always been saying, even though now it's going to rock your world and open up your eyes and transition your heart to see the deep needs you have for a different kind of Messiah than you expected. What I'm telling you is actually consistent with God's word. That's what we've been walking through. And I want to focus on verse 20 this morning. We've been in this section actually for about four different weeks. And so as we come to the last part of this paragraph, look with me again at verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were on that hill with Jesus that day, just a few verses earlier, you would have heard him say, Hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are those that have nothing to offer. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he says, hey, you have to actually have a righteousness that exceeds kind of the spiritual superstars of your day if you have any chance of getting into the kingdom of heaven. And so like them, we should ask, wait a second, is Jesus doing something different here? Is this a a works righteousness salvation saying you have to achieve a certain standard? or, Or how do we actually interpret this? And so remember, Jesus is an amazing preacher. He's provocative. He says things to get their attention. And actually, I think if you, they would have perked up. They're actually probably used to being examples of something that you should admire or esteem. And so as soon as he comes down this road, if you have to be like the scribes and Pharisees, they probably went like, yep, here it is. Challenge accepted. We will be the standard for everybody. But what he says is you have to actually exceed do with that. But he's saying, well, the people around you that are kind of the green berets spiritually, you have to actually do more than that in the kingdom of heaven. And with that, like, what are you saying? He jumps into six illustrations. Remember, it's one sermon, and every good pastor has good illustrations. So he's going to give six illustrations to explain what he's talking about. So let's just walk through this real fast. The reason why I had Remington read those little sections is six times he'll follow a pattern of, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and then give an illustration of what that looks like in the kingdom of God. So there's kind of three parts to each of these six illustrations. Some of them are quotes from the Torah. They're quotes from God's Word. Some of them are mixes of tradition with God's Word. Some of them are simply just the scribes, regulations, and rules, because these guys were committed to a behavior that would earn their righteousness with God. They were committed to following all the rules. We'll look at a couple passages later on. The minutia of your life, you're following laws and rules. So, So what does it mean that we have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? So look with me in these six illustrations. So first he goes anger. He goes straight to the big ten, rest is the Ten Commandments, and he says this, you've heard it said, that everyone's got that. And he says, but I'm telling you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. So there's this outward thing that I can measure. Have I killed somebody? Yes or no. And then he moves it into the heart. Have I ever thought poorly of someone, have ever insulted somebody, ever kind of said of somebody, that person's an idiot, that person is a fool, which I can't measure on the outside. So he's pushing the law from the external to the internal. And then he doesn't just stop there, he doesn't just say, hey, you've heard it said the external law you have to follow. I'm telling you, follow the internal law. What he says now is that law has to drive you in such a way that if you are worshiping at the altar and you remember that you have ought with your brother or they have ought with you, you would get up, not say anything to anybody, and you go straight to your brother, and you would go and be reconciled. The application of do not murder 
and don't be angry in your heart is to live a life of reconciliation. So he is ratcheting up what it means. He said you have to exceed what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees aren't killing people. They probably would teach that it would be wrong to be angry. Maybe they would insult people in their heart but not speak it with their lips, but they dang sure wouldn't go to somebody who they were offended with or who was offended with them. They would make that person come to them. Illustration one. Illustration two, he goes to adultery. Again, in the Big Ten, right? You've heard it said in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if even in your heart of adultery, so both women and men find themselves in their hearts in a space of unfaithfulness constantly. And he goes on from that space and not just say, don't, don't do that, but would you go to extreme measures, believing that your heart was so valuable, would you go to extreme measures to keep your heart safe and secure so you didn't entertain thoughts and images that would actually cultivate a lustful spirit inside of you? you you've heard it said, but I tell you, here's what it would look like. You're following the pattern? We'll skip a couple, go down to verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is actually an Old Testament quote, but they were misusing it in lots of ways. So he says, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. I'm not talking about retribution. This eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, the context was about justice, not you getting to get somebody back if they offended you. It was about justice for the oppressed and the poor. The scribes and Pharisees had twisted that and made that about retaliation, not justice, not mercy, but Retaliation, And so he says, actually, if somebody offends you, what you should do is turn the other cheek because you're not trying to build your own righteousness. through. Give them that as well. They ask you to go one mile, go with them too. He pushes it as an illustration to say this idea of laying down your rights for the sake of other people goes way past just not yelling at them or not getting retribution. It actually has you sacrifice and serve those that harm you. He's now a few more minutes into it, and these Pharisees would be scratching their head going like, nobody does that. Nobody who's been asked to go one mile goes two. This is crazy. No, nobody could meet this standard. So he comes to the last one here in verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So he takes part of what's in the Old Testament, and the scribes had added something to it, right? So they had a way of like elevating parts of the law and making it more strenuous when it was in their favor, and then lowering parts of the law when that was also in their favor, right? They kind of performed and pretended in some really significant ways. And what he's saying there is, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but, but do whatever you want to or hate or disregard your enemies. But I'm telling you to love your enemies and don't just love them, actually pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father. This is the way that God is who's in heaven. He makes the sun rise and shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So I'm not just telling you to love people that can pay you back. I actually want you to move to those who you're most frustrated with or who most harm you and do them good the same way God does them good. And then he closes this little section with verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. All right, it's one sermon. He's sitting on this hill. He's called out the religious leaders. He's given now six illustrations. There's an external following of the law. Just saying that that's actually not the law that I came to fulfill. I'm telling you it's actually deeper than that. What God is after is deeper than just external following. It's about your action. And so all the Pharisees at this point would be going like, man, this is simply too much. And, and people around the room are going like, we're all sunk. There's no way. If these religious elite can't do that, if that's the standard, then why are we even listening? All of us are done. None of us can make ourselves righteous. None of us could actually get ourselves into a place where we could actually be right with God. 
And it's in that place of accurate despair that the good news of the gospel gets to be heard. What Jesus has done is he's walked them through this idea that I came to fulfill the law and the promises of the Old Testament. And the promises of the Old Testament were that God was going to come and send a Messiah to come and rescue and redeem us, to come and make us right with God by his own sacrifice. There's promises in the Old Testament of a new covenant where God will take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh and take the law externally and write it internally onto our hearts that God was going to do something new because we couldn't keep the laws. That's actually in the Old Testament teachings that Jesus said he came to fulfill, not to abandon, not to set them aside, but to fulfill them and to actually accomplish them. So he set them up in their self-righteousness and their heart, realize they can't manage God. They can't do enough good things on the outside. They can't perform in such a way that God would be pleased with them. They need some sort of radical help. And in that space, the good news of the gospel gets to be heard. Jesus will close this sermon relationship. The question is not, have you done enough? It's, do I actually know you? And the way that we are known by God is to believe and trust in him for our righteousness and our salvation. So, so the scribes are this elite. But Jesus says, hey, I have lots of concerns about the way you live your life. You're actually living your life in such a way that you've separated me from you. You think you can make yourself right with God, which actually means you don't think you actually need God if you can control all the outward circumstances. We'll go there real fast. Flip it over just a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, there's this seven woes that Jesus gives to these Pharisees. These people who are scribes, the very ones he said, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. We won't read all of them, but there's seven different woes. And he starts in verse 2, and he says, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, right? whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. The problem's not with the law. The problem's not with the word of God. The problem's not with what God communicated. It's with the way these people were taking that law, hearing it, twisting it, pushing it back on people, and not living by it. So he says, woe to them. Right In verse 13, he says, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You use the standards of God and his holiness not to invite people into salvation, but to exclude them. Woe to you. He calls them blind guides. He says that the way you're engaging this is simply wrong and blind. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you've neglected the weight of your matters of law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, you are so concerned to make yourself right. You're so concerned to prove that you don't actually need God. You can save yourself on your own through all your good works and behaviors. Even the stuff that's in your cupboard, you're following the laws to tithe on. And you've totally missed the heart of God. You've totally missed the heart of God when it comes to justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you would say to yourself, I'm a good person. I give money. I read my Bible. I come to church. But when it comes to the things around you where God's heart is bleeding to see people redeemed and saved, you don't care. Woe to you. We should be really neglect to the big things. What he's doing is driving after their heart. And he's going to make it explicit here. In verse 25 of chapter 23, he says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside may also be clean. Now he's being explicit to say, hey, your issue is a heart issue. You're so concerned with what's on the outside, you make it look really pretty. You follow all the rules. But what's happening inside is dirty, he says, right? There's a lack of cleanliness, which this would make these guys furious because they spent their life following all the cleanliness rules to prove that they were good enough for God's love. And he caps this section by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You can catch on. There's one more woe, but you can just see what he does here. What he says is there's actually death inside of you. So what you're doing on the outside simply doesn't matter. You need something to change on the inside. So back to our context from Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, I think he has this in mind. A righteousness that you can't earn through outward perfection and behavior. It's a heart righteousness that you need. What they lacked was heart transformation. And this is good news because he's not saying be perfect in all of your behavior But it's also bad news because we can't change our hearts, which leads us to the greatest news that that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to actually heal and redeem and rescue and change our hearts. He's preaching the sermon about what it means to come into the kingdom. And what he says is you have to go farther than the farthest people. You need a different kind of righteousness, actually. It's not more of the same. You have to have something that exceeds that. It's deeper than that. It's more than that. What you need is a righteousness that's given to you from the inside where your heart actually changes. So they'll be going through their Bible memory from rabbi school and day school and thinking through, all right, what does the Old Testament actually say? Let me highlight three passages for you. If you're writing down these notes or you can flip with me. But Isaiah 53, 11 is huge for us. Isaiah 53, 11, this is an Old Testament prophet, right? Which Jesus said would not pass away to all that was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 11, prophet says this, speaking of the Messiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear there was going to come, and he was going to credit to people's account his righteousness. He was going to count them righteous, not that they had earned that, because he was going to actually bear their iniquities. Jesus is preaching the gospel to this crowd saying, you couldn't actually save yourself. It puts them in a jam where they realize they have a deep, deep need. The standards of God are so high, and my sinfulness would never actually measure up. I need a substitute to come and stand in the way. And they would remember passages like Isaiah 53, that God was actually going to count righteousness to them because he would bear their iniquities. Flip with me back to Jeremiah, another prophet. Jeremiah chapter 31, it's on page 660 if you're in that pew Bible. You have this prophecy that Messiah is going to come and rescue, and then you have these prophecies that God was going to do something new in the new covenant. And Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't come to actually set aside the old covenant. I came to fulfill it. So that the new covenant could happen. And it's one big story, right? There's one hero. There's one plan. The scriptures interpret the scriptures. And it's a hopeful story we saw last week. Jesus is saying, hey, the way it's always been designed is that God would do something to change your heart. Listen to me in verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. This is so beautiful. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is going to happen. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah with God's people. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt when they delivered them. This covenant is they could break that other covenant. This one is different, he says. Though I was their husband, they still broke it. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. When Jesus said, I came to fulfill the prophets and the law, the teachings of the Old Testament, he has that on his mind. And he's just said, hey, these six illustrations show you couldn't make yourself righteous anyway. Set yourself up to receive what God is doing in the new covenant promise. Let's go one more passage. Flip over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. It's on page 724 in your pew Bible. Again, a prophet that Jesus says, this prophecy is not coming coming undone. It's not that it's gone away. I actually came to fulfill it and to accomplish it. Listen again what he says. He says, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, is it, not for your, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, name, which you've profaned among the nations. He says, hey, I'm doing something to respond to your sin and brokenness. You actually continue to say you're my people, but you continue to rebel and push away from me. So, so I'm going to do something about that. I will vindicate my holiness, he says, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you, Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And here it is. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. All the ways that the scribes had blown it and had made themselves unclean on the inside. He says, I will actually cleanse you from the inside out. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And he says in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. Jesus is saying to these people, hey, there's a a righteousness you need that you can't accomplish. And in the context, he gives illustrations to prove that, which we'll unpack in the days to come. But what's beautiful about these illustrations is they're also invitations. He's saying, hey, here was the standard that you've heard. Let me tell you, it's actually deeper than that. And if you were to have your heart changed, you would act and behave and relate wildly differently with those around you. It would cause you to be gracious. It would cause you to to take back what someone has harmed you with. It would actually give generously. You would actually move away from anger towards love and reconciliation. That's what the kingdom of God was designed to do. We tend to look horizontally for our standards and compete with other people to say, how am I doing this way? But Jesus says, hey, it's actually this way that you should be concerned. It's with the righteousness that God requires. You have to be perfect the way your heavenly Father is perfect, he says in verse 48 of chapter 5. And everyone would just take a deep breath and go, oh, I can't do that. Unless God actually fulfills his promises to come and make all things new, which is exactly what Jesus did on the cross for us. And this is the pattern of the gospel, this crushing news of our brokenness. The holiness of God that we could never actually attain or meet. And then the sweet good news that God met that need on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. Here's the way another New Testament passage say it. This is Romans chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God, right, which is what you're going after. You, you want this righteousness Jesus is teaching. 
It has been seen apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to right. It's all one story. It's always been talking like this. The righteousness of God is in the Old Testament pointing this direction. This righteousness of God, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who will believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but they are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in. Takes this hinge passage and he's now going to open it up and explain what it looks like to live life in the kingdom. But before he gets there, he wants to remind them, you can't do enough to save yourself. You need a substitute. Can, can you kind of feel the tension that they would be under, right? Here's the superstars. We can't compete with them. And dang, they can't even meet the need. All of us are sunk. Oh, wait a second. God actually promised to send one who was going to make everything right and new. And, and Jesus of ears to ask, God, what are you providing for me? What are you doing in me? What are you actually setting me up to be able to follow you with in your kingdom? Right? Remember, it's one story with one hero. There's one plan that Jesus is at the center of. The story all fits together, and it's this story of hope we talked about last week that God actually came to reconcile and to save people. And so we read a passage like this and we ask those questions that we talked about last week. Like, what does this teach me about God? It teaches me that his standard of holiness is so high, I could never actually attain it. And he's also so gracious that though we have rebelled, he actually is the kind of God who stands in our place to make a way for us to be right with him. What does it teach me about myself? It it teaches me that I can't actually measure up. I can't do the things that God's required. My, My heart is not consistent enough. I need a new heart. And then how does it point me to Jesus, we asked last week? It points me to set me up to say he's the one who has to do this work inside of me. He's the one who actually, I I can't do enough. I need a Savior, and Jesus promised to be just that. And Isaiah 53 reads like the cross, where in his own body, Jesus bears the weight of our sin to forgive us so that we could actually be set free. And the function of a passage like this is it shows us God's holiness And it shows us our sinfulness, which brings us to understand our need for Jesus. And that's actually an amazing place to be, friends. And here's the deal. That awareness of God's holiness and my sinfulness and my need for Jesus is something that you will carry your entire life. On your deathbed, you'll understand that God is holy and you're not And you need a substitute. And Jesus came to actually fulfill the requirements of the law on your behalf so that you could receive his perfection as a gift, that he would accredit to your account his righteousness so you could be in a relationship with God. You'll never actually get past this beautiful news of the gospel that that he's holy, that we're sinful, and we need a Savior. I actually want to sit here for just a second, because I think this is something that will help us in the long term as a people. If we can wrestle with the good news of the gospel in a practical way, it actually sets us up to follow Jesus when you fail, when you're doing really well, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, when you think that no one's around, when no one is with you, when you feel abandoned. If you can keep in your mind that God has died for me, I think it will actually change you radically. It will actually let you grow in the good news of, of this gospel message of God's deep, deep love for you. So Jesus sets them up for that. I want to use an illustration to help us kind of bring it home. Some of you guys have seen this. I have a slide here back this week, so I'm not putting like a country western thing on this, or I'm not trying to strut over here. I'm actually having trouble moving. Hey, this is a, a, something called the cross chart of the gospel grid. Some of you guys have seen this before. Would you, would you notice that top line there? It says an awareness of God's holiness. 
And that bottom line says an awareness of our sinfulness. It's like a timeline moving from left to right. And that arrow there where the lines diverge, there's the word conversion. And what this is teaching us is that to be reconciled to Jesus, you first have to understand God's holiness. You have to see him as holy and beautiful. You have to see him as righteous and just. And his standards are standards that in your sinfulness, the bottom line says, you can't actually meet. You have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and you realize you can't do that. They, they can't do that. You need something different. So conversion happens with the next slide when you trust Jesus. So draw a little cross there at that spot. Remember, this is a timeline for doing pretty well. I was Horizontally, I was doing pretty well compared to my family, but when it came to the standard of God, I failed miserably. And the first time someone took me to the Bible and showed me passages like Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I realized God is holy and I'm not. There's a problem. And the scriptures say that if I'll trust Jesus, he's the one who fills that gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. So, so that conversion, we trust Jesus. And then if it's a timeline, the beauty of the gospel is, next slide, this continues to grow in our hearts. So, so it's an awareness chart. It's not an actualization chart. It's not that God is getting more holy. It's, a, it's what I can see. So I have an increased understanding of God's holiness. And it's not that I should be getting worse, like I shouldn't pick up more maladies or addictions or dysfunction the longer I go, but I'm actually more aware of my sinfulness the farther I go, which means I'm more aware of what Christ has done for me. The more I see his holiness, the more I read these six illustrations and go, man, God's the kind of God that wants me to not just like retaliate or not retaliate or just walk away. He actually wants me to love my enemies. There's no way I could do that. Hey, Jesus did that for me. The scriptures say that I was his enemy, separated from him, and he actually came and died in my place and my appreciation for what Christ has done grows. And the idea is that the longer I live my life, the more I read God's word, which is where I see his holiness displayed for me and where I'm more aware of my sinfulness, my appreciation or my growth of what Christ did for me on the cross continues to grow. The angst that they would feel in this passage of there's a standard here that I can't meet. It's not just a moment for them. It's actually just holy standards. And every time you feel that way as a Christian, you take a deep breath and you go, God, thank you that you met it for me. Thank you that in your own body you bore the sins that I had committed so that I could actually receive your righteousness, the scriptures say. And so I have a growing time. Kind of tracking with me? All right. Now, I wish life worked like this. It actually doesn't. So in our next slide, what happens normally is that we continue to try to perform in a way to please God, or we pretend the standards aren't actually as high as they are so that we might actually meet them. And we do that we actually shrink the cross. These scribes and Pharisees had added certain things to the law and taken certain things away from the law. So they were living their life performing and pretending like they didn't actually need God. They had lowered God's holy standards to something they could attain. Like if they just tithed on their mint and dill and cumin, they would be fine. But it's actually deeper than that. It's bigger than that. And if they just followed the external things like don't murder, don't commit adultery, they could be fine. But actually their sinfulness is way deeper. And when we do that, we actually shrink our understanding of what God has done for us. Remember, it's an awareness chart, not an actualization chart. God doesn't do less for you, but you're less aware of what he's done for you. That doesn't actually work that. Our lives are more like this. Nothing in my life is linear. Nothing. Nothing is in a straight line 
at all. So if the top line is of my awareness of God's holiness, and the bottom line is my awareness of my sinfulness, that is constantly moving. It's constantly jagged. So, so maybe I read God's word in a space where I'm really thankful. I see his, his description of his salvation, and I have a growing sense of that. But maybe when I suffer and I, I think I, I've prayed for something and God doesn't do it, maybe my awareness of God's goodness is where I blow it, right? I made a commitment and, and I said I would never do it again and I wind up doing it again in the shadows and in the darkness by myself in that space. I'm more aware of my sinfulness. But there are days that I actually perform pretty well. And if I'm going horizontally compared to other people, I might actually think of myself not way down here, but actually up here, like I'm, I'm actually gaining some ground. And, and when that happens, next slide, our understanding of the cross is also constantly changing. There are times when suffering and us performing well might give us a small understanding of what God has done. In the moments where we're in his word and we see how how beautiful he is and we see how broken we are, then that cross actually expands for us, right? So you have this dynamic relationship with your understanding of God's holiness and your understanding of your own sinfulness that sets you up to, to see how much you need Jesus. So throughout, throughout your life, actually, what should happen is a growing, beautiful appreciation of how broken you actually are, which doesn't push you towards shame or fear or rejection. It pushes you towards feeling loved and welcomed by God himself. That God would love someone like us who actually doesn't not just kill somebody, but actually humanizes people. That doesn't actually just not commit adultery, but actually commodifies people with our eyes and our hearts and consumes them in our souls. Those kinds of people that prey on other beings in our souls and in our hearts, that kind of person can be saved, right? So a deep understanding of your sinfulness and a growing understanding of God's holiness sets you up to see your deep, deep need for Jesus. In that space, what happens is we are changed and transformed as we realize what Christ has done for us. Because remember, these six illustrations, they don't just say, all right, it was external, now it's internal. They actually give an illustration of, hey, if you actually followed God, here's what that would look like. So when we actually engage the heart of God for his salvation for us, it changes us on the inside, and we don't like just tap out and go, good, God, God met that standard for me, I can stop. God meeting that for us actually motivates us into love. So, so uh, 2 Corinthians 5 would say, it's the love of God that me. The more I see what Christ has done, the more I want to respond to what he's done. The more I realize I've been reconciled to God and I was his enemy, the more I'll love my enemies. The more I realize how God sees people and values them and loves them, and so much so he would die, want to consume them. The more I see Jesus for who he is and what he's done for me, in light of God's holiness and my sinfulness, my heart is actually changed and transform. And the good news of the gospel is God didn't just come to give us a new set of rules. He didn't just come to give us a new set of rules. He came to give us new hearts and new hearts so that we could follow after the heart of God. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to give us new hearts, not new rules to follow so that we could follow after the heart of God. And it never stops. It never grows old. It never gives up. It actually keeps transforming and changing us, which is why, if we're coming full circle in this passage, the reason why we got to be in God's Word, it's the Word of God that actually pushes those lines out for us. Your experience is a terrible judge of who God is. It's actually a terrible judge of who you are. And the voices you already believe about yourself and about God will continue to distort how you see reality. So it's God's Word that, that pushes those lines of awareness 
out. So when I suffer and I wonder, man, is God actually good? Is God actually loving? Because I've prayed for this and it hasn't happened. It's in the narrative of God's faithful walking with his rebellious people that I see his faithful, loving heart me of his holiness. And I wonder, hey, am I, how am I doing okay? Like I'm better than everybody else around me. I'm dang sure better than my spouse or than my kids or I'm better than my parents or I'm better than whoever I'm comparing myself with in that space. The God, word of God pushes the line down, not in shame, but an invitation to reality to say, hey, you could actually be honest about the stuff inside your heart because Jesus came to actually heal and redeem that as well. And then what happens in that space is that we don't just stop and lean back in holiness. We actually move towards God because his heart is actually for our good. And so we begin now to live into these illustrations in these six little segments that he gives in the sermon. Our hearts actually are set up to love enemies and to not consume. It's beautiful the way it happens. So Romans 6 says it like this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, right, deep bottom line, my heart was compelled by rebellion. You become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, right? God's changed your heart, and that's changing your behavior, it's changing your attitude, it's changing your desires. You become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, right, which is that top line to which you have been committed. And you have actually been set free from sin, and you become slaves. We're held by my own ego and identity. And then Jesus came and rescued me. And now I'm actually set free to follow after this loving God and to pursue the righteousness that he came to give me. The righteousness that he says I have to have that far exceeds that of the Pharisees. The righteousness that he says I have to have in the form of perfection the way God is perfect. To realize that Jesus stood in my place. He stood in my place and he took the penalty for my sin to set me free. He stood in your place and he took the penalty of your sin to set you free. And as you read God's word, what you see is it elevates God's holiness, it exposes your sinfulness, and it invites you into a relationship with God where your sins are forgiven, and not just forgiven and tolerated, but you're actually set free to be in a relationship. What Jesus says you have to do more of than the Pharisees were doing is have a relationship with God. You have to be transformed from the inside out, and you can't do that on your own, which is what Jesus actually came to accomplish for us. And now you can read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, not as laws and rules you have to keep so that God would love you. You can read them as examples of what the kingdom of God looks like when someone is set free from the sin and self and actually set up to trust God and follow him. So when it comes to your marriage and your singleness, when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to your money, when it comes to your intimate relationships, when it comes to your job, when it comes to your money, meet so God would love me. You stay up from this place here and go, man, there's actually a righteousness that I could never have that Jesus gives to me. And that actually now frees me to pursue the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God, right? Again, the good news is that Jesus came to give us new hearts, not new rules to follow so that we could follow after the heart of God. And when we see that, friends, it changes everything. That timeline means that when we're in our 90s, I was with a man yesterday who's 98 years old. 98 years old. What we're going to do his wife's funeral in a couple of weeks. They've been married for 72 years. That man at the end of his life should have a deep, deep understanding of his own brokenness and God's faithfulness and his holiness so that his love for Jesus gives him comfort as he thinks about putting his wife in the ground. Right? It actually changes even a mundane 
But cataclysmic moment like that is actually orient his heart around who God is. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more we see how much he loves us, and that changes and transforms us, which is why we take communion every single week, to rehearse and remember and remind ourselves that we are loved, that God actually met the gap between his holiness and my sinfulness in his own body to give us his righteousness the way Isaiah 53 said he would. And that is the good news. I don't know if you got tripped up as we came across that passage. Jesus is not telling you, do better, try harder. He's telling you he's done everything so you're loved and free, and you're actually free to actually follow him with your whole life. So I want to lead us to communion now. If you have those little cups, there's a wafer on the bottom, and there's a juice on the top. If you missed some, there's some here in the front. There's also some in the back. I'm going to pray for you, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you just to go through this kind of gospel grid. God, you're holy. What does this tell me about God? It tells me that he's holy. What does it tell me about me? It tells me that I'm, I'm sinful. And how does it point me to Jesus? It points me to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice who would stand in my place to make a way for me to be loved and reconciled and redeemed. Let me pray for you, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would love for you just to sit and pray and ask God to speak to you. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that should help guide that time. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thanks for giving us a righteousness that far exceeds that of the Pharisees. Thanks for giving us your perfection so we could actually be in relationship with you. God, we we trust you, and, and our awareness is always changing and shifting. Sometimes we actually hold you in contempt and think that we're really amazing. And sometimes in shame, we push away from you thinking we could never be loved, and sometimes we're just really confused. So now would you use these elements of your broken body and your shed blood to remind us that you bridge the gap between your holiness and our sinfulness in a way that makes us acceptable, welcomes us into a relationship, changes us from the inside out so we could actually follow you. It gives us a different kind of righteousness that we could actually consume and pursue and follow you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.